Cain in 815 years begat sons and daughters. All the days of Enos were 905 years, and he died. And Canaan lived 70 years and begat Mahalaleel. And Canaan lived after he got Mahalaleel, 840 years, begat sons and daughters. All the days of Canaan were 910 years, and he died. Mahalaleel lived 60 and 5 years, begat Jared. Mahalaleel lived after he begat Jared, 830 years, and begat sons and daughters. All the days of Mahalaleel were 890 and 5 years, and he died. Jared lived 162 years and begat Enoch. Jared lived after he begat Enoch 800 years and begat sons and daughters. All the days of Jared were 962 years and he died. Enoch lived 60 and 5 years and begat Methuselah. Enoch walked with God after he begat Methuselah 300 years and begat sons and daughters. And all the days of Enoch were 360 and 5 years. And Enoch walked with God and he was not for God took him. Methuselah lived 180 and 7 years, begat Lamech. Methuselah lived after he begat Lamech 782 years and begat sons and daughters. All the days of Methuselah were 969 years and he died. Lamech lived 180 and 2 years, begat a son, called his name Noah, saying, This same shall comfort us concerning our work and toil of our hands because of the ground which the Lord hath cursed. Lamech lived after he begat Noah 590 and 5 years begat sons and daughters, and all the days of Lamech were 770 and seven years, and he died. And Noah was 500 years old, and Noah begat Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Tonight I want to talk about how we should live in this fallen world. Let's pray together. Lord, I thank you for today. Thank you for just what we've heard, what we've already been able to share together, and pray for this time as we share the Word of God Help us to be focused on what you have for us here today and work in our hearts, Lord, I ask in Jesus' name, amen. Last week, we were able to look at, in chapter 4, how the society basically grew from Adam and Eve. No longer was it a family of four, Adam and Eve, Cain and Abel, but now we've grown into a large society. And really, we looked at the society on one side through... uh, uh, through uh, Cain and all his descendants, that their direction was wicked. In fact, there were many of them, and one of them very particular, Lamech, not the same Lamech we read here, but Lamech in chapter number 4 was very defiant in his wickedness. But we ended with chapter 4 that there was hope that came about because a certain one had a son, and in that son's lifetime, men began to call out unto God. And literally, it was that with the son being born and a focus not on the world and its problems, not on how bad God is because of how, how terrible life is on this earth, but men began looking to God and the focus through another line, through Seth, was the aspect of having faith in God. In fact, in the midst of the corruption, there was a line of people, a generation of people, who began to seek after God. And I must say that as I read about this, in fact, as we delve into the next couple chapters, we're going to see that God's going to bring a flood because the world is so corrupt. I often ask myself, what makes our, our society any better than what it was then? 
I mean, if our society in how corrupt it is today is this bad, how bad was it back then? But I'm going to here say to you tonight, and I hope this comes through as a refrain, the idea that no matter how corrupt the world is, you can live for God. Don't ever walk around thinking, I can't do it. There's no way I can live for God. You just don't understand what goes on in the school that I attend. You don't understand the neighborhood. You don't know my family. I'm just telling you, you can live for God in the midst of this crooked and perverse generation. But the way that you live for God is you become a person who trusts God in the midst of all this and you focus on Him and you put your attention on Him and call out to Him as the son of Enos did and others in this. Now I want to go ahead and share with you first of all, my first point is talking about in verse number one, the book of the generations, the book of the generations. Now, truthfully, when you read this in verse number one, where it says, this is the book of the generations of Adam, and then it's a period. Very interesting phrase that is given to us. But it is a phrase that actually marks a particular division in the book. In fact, if you look through the book of Genesis, 17 times in the English here, the word generations is used. 13 times through the book of Genesis it seems to indicate that there is a mark of division in the book of Genesis. You say, well, what do you mean? Well, first of all, look at this one. This is the book of the generations of Adam. Notice here, this is written in a book. The one time in the book of Genesis that it links the word generations with the word book is right here, this chapter, this particular verse. This helps me understand something. How many of you have heard in school, well, the people in those days back then, they just were, you know, almost like cave people. They didn't understand technology and writing and all that type of stuff. Let me tell you something. Adam wrote down in a book. They were of such a people that they were learned and they had a written language and they were able to put their thoughts on record in what they considered a book. But this book of the generations, what does this mean? What is this idea of these markings through the book of Genesis? Well, every so often in the book of Genesis, there is a compilation that is given of the history of God's people. For instance, go back with me, if you will, to chapter 2 and verse number 4. Notice what it says in chapter 2, verse number 4. These are the generations of the heaven, heavens and of the earth when they were created. Now basically, nobody's around at that time. God has created everything and God says, All right, I'm making a record here of what is given and I'm going to pass this along to Adam. And so therefore, when we come to chapter 5, verse 1, guess what Adam does? He takes what has been given directly from God, chapter 1, up to chapter 2, verse number 4, and then everything that we've gone over in chapter 2, in chapter 3, and in chapter 4, guess who records it in a book? Adam. Adam preserves the history up to that point 
of everything that has taken place. Now go with me, if you will, to chapter 6 and verse number 9. Notice the next marking. These are the generations of Noah. So now, when we come to chapter 6, verse number 9, Adam has passed off the scene, but now who becomes the man that is the record keeper, if you will? Noah. So Noah fills in the gap of after Adam passing away and begins filling in. And you can walk through the book of Genesis and realize that there are certain markers along the way because God is preserving for us and wants us to see that there is a record of what He has done and that His Word is true. I'm here to tell you tonight, there's a whole world out there that wants to discredit this book. There's a whole world out there that says, oh, the Bible's not true. I want to tell you something. God took careful record of putting down and seeing to it that everyone in line began to record the history and put it together of the doings of God and the things that went on in this world. And there it is, the book of the generations that is given What a powerful thing that God has done here. But now I want you to notice here that in this book of the generations, I want you to grab something here in how Adam begins recording some of this. First of all, notice in verses 1 through 3, this point, there is a record of creation likeness. Notice the wording of the first couple of verses. We might read through the first three verses here and not catch the exactness of God's Word. And may I remind you that God's Word is very exact. It's precise. God is very specific. And so the specificity is this. In verse number 1, we are reminded that God created Adam in his likeness. In fact, we're reminded of that because all you need to go back is a few chapters and look at chapter 1 and see that God said that he made man in his likeness. This was given to us in the first chapter. Adam was created. How was he created in God's likeness? Well, when we talked about that in that message, we weren't talking about that Adam looked physically like God. Adam was created in this way that God is an intellectual being, so therefore man was created with intellect. God is a being of emotion, and therefore He created man with emotion. He created man with the ability to choose, that is, volition. But he created man in an innocent state. But I want you to think about this. While we're reminded in verse number 1 that God created Adam in his likeness, look at verse number 3 and don't miss this. Adam lived in 130 years, and Adam begat a son, would you read the next words with me? In his own likeness. What likeness was that? That was different than the way that God created Adam. While Adam was created with an innocent state, if you will, Seth was born in the likeness of Adam. In other words, Seth was born with a sin nature. How amazing it is to realize that now as we go through the record of Scripture, 
every child that is born is born in the likeness of Adam. They are born with a sin nature. Romans chapter 5, verse 12 through 14, make it so clear. Wherefore, as by one man, sin entered into the world. Who's that man? That's Adam. And because Adam sinned, Adam's sin has passed upon every person. And not only has Adam's sin passed upon every person, but the consequence of Adam's sin has passed upon every person, and that is death. And so what a powerful statement to note. And sometimes we read through these things, and we'll gloss over them, but God is very exact in how He puts things here. And all men are born sinners. No wonder why Jesus and the book of John told Nicodemus that he must be born again. Why? Because every person that is born physically is born in the likeness of Adam, and they're born in sin. They're shapen in iniquity, as the Old Testament mentions. So in this book here of the generations, there's the record of creation likeness. But notice now, there is a record of ages. As we read this, did you get a little bored and think to yourself, why is he reading all these verses with the ages? I wanted there to be an impact with you to catch this. We're given something here that has intrigued us when we read in the book of Genesis, and it is the ages. Look at verse number 5. Adam, how long did he live? 930 years. Look at verse number 8. Seth lived 912 years. Verse number 11. Enos lived 905 years. In verse number 27, the oldest man that's ever been recorded to have lived, think about this, 969 years old. Pretty impressive. Now, I don't know if you have an imagination, but I like to just think about this. If I were to just take an average age, let's just say that the average age at that time was about 900 years old, and right now maybe, and I'm just throwing out a figure, about 75 years old. Well, I've just kind of imagined this life in these days. At about 191 years old, you're going to get your driver's license. You're graduating from high school right at about 216 years old. When you get to 600 years old and you're starting to get that slump of getting into old age and complaining about how your back is hurting and all sorts of things, your eyes aren't what they used to be, there's an 800-year-old man that's sitting next to you and says, son, wait till you get to be my age. I mean, think about all this. Imagine the life of these people in these days. And you say, well, how in the world was it possible that they lived? Well, we did discuss some of this in earlier message, and we'll wait to talk further in regards to the days of the flood. But it seemed to be that there was some type of canopy that was over the earth's atmosphere protecting it. And when the flood came along, it sure changed things because we notice after the flood, the years of uh, uh, the year of the life expectancy began to go down. Again, we'll talk more about this later, but let me take another thing, not just a record of ages, but notice here a record of the relationships that are here. Let's just see how things kind of fit together. As you read this chapter, first of all, there's certain facts that just kind of jump out at you. What are those facts? Well, is it not amazing that each one of these people started taking up that cultural mandate and the fact of being fruitful and multiplying? I mean, this one got married and had a child, and then this one got married and had a child, and that son got married and had a child, and they took serious the business that God had to be fruitful and multiply. 
And so that fact kind of emerges through there. But another fact that emerges is this, that despite what we read about in the end of chapter 4 of the corrupt society, what we're seeing in chapter number 5 is a society of a group of people that are trying to stand away from the world and they're trying to follow God. Now we're going to talk a little bit more about that in a moment. But I think there's another thing that steps out in this whole chapter and it's this. There is no doubt that the curse of sin was in effect in chapter number 5. Did you notice every so often, this one lived this long, and then these simple words, and he died. This one lived this long, and he died. This one lived this many years, and he died. What are we reading about here? We're noting here that all of these men are dying because they are sinners. And we know from the Bible that the consequence of sin is death. The accounting of this in Adam's book, Adam is very rigid in listing this. This one lived, he lived this many years, and he died. And again, it's a stark reminder that all of us have an appointed day in which we will meet our Lord. But note the correlation here, this record of relationships. Let me just kind of point out some interesting facts before we get into the crux of the message here. The Bible records for us that Adam died at 930 years old. Now, if you were to go ahead and look at, and I'm not going to list them all, but if you take them out on a piece of paper and list out the names of Adam and then Seth, and Enos, and we go down the list of what we read in chapter 5. Do you realize that Adam died 56 years after Lamech was born? Now you say, big deal. Well, let me just put this in perspective. Adam lived so long, he was able to see his grandson Enos, his great-grandson Canaan, his great-great-grandson Mahalaleel, his great-great-great-grandson Jared, his great-great-great-great-grandson Enoch, his great-great-great-great-great-grandson Methuselah, and his great-great-great-great-great-great-grandson Lamech. Now, I did that for purpose because I want you to understand the perspective of this. You say, what is so important here to bring out about Adam? I want to say this, even though the Scripture does not talk about it, I believe that the Bible seems to give us an indication that Adam had a job of promoting and speaking about to the generation to follow how they must look to God. And who better to do it than a man who at the very beginning had failed, and because of his failure, it has affected every generation. And no doubt Adam probably looking over at the the, the wilderness of Nod, right at the east of Eden, every once in a while, he'd see that corrupt society. He'd see the the behavior of those people and, and how they were living. And I believe that Adam took the great responsibility of teaching his son and his grandson and his great grandson and all these generations. Son, I want to tell you it's important to look to God, it is important to trust God. And so, what a grave responsibility here of preserving God's words 
to the generations to follow, and I believe Adam did that. It's also interesting to note something else in this chapter, and that that is, we'll talk about it in a moment, Enoch did not die. Did you notice that? The Bible says, and he was not, the Lord took him. Therefore, he was outlived by his father. There's another man in this list that also was outlived by his father. He's Lamech. Lamech does not live anywhere near the age of his father. In fact, Lamech only lives 777 years only. Verse 31 records it. But he dies here, therefore he died five years before his own father. And again, I just want to point something out. I'm not going to go to the verse, but it's very interesting. 2 Peter chapter 2, verse number 5, if you were to look at that verse, it lists here how Noah was the eighth preacher of righteousness. Well, when you look from Adam to Noah, it wasn't eight people. But if you take out Lamech and if you take out uh, Enoch, you find that there are eight people listed here who had the opportunity to preach to the next generation. And what a comparison of these lines that are given here, this record of relationships. Looking at the line of Cain in the end of chapter 4, looking at the line of Seth, what do I see about him? Well, there's a, there's a line of rebellion against God. There's a line that has faith in God. You say, well, how do you see that they have such faith in God? Well, look at some of the names that are given here. The name Seth we mentioned last week is the name, it means appointed one. The name Enos means a mortal man. And despite all of the accomplishments that ever came about because of mankind and the society and how it grew, there was a sense that man was still finite before God. Notice the name Canaan literally has this meaning of a possession. And in essence, when Canaan was born, it was almost like the father of Canaan gives an announcement to those around them that no matter how much you get of material goods in this world, no matter how far you get in this life, I'm going to tell you something, life is not worth lived apart from God. Mahalaleel means praise to God. Jared, the word, the name means descent. And it's a reminder that as The ages are moving along. God's truth continues to march along as well. Now let me talk about some notable figures and their witness for God. Let me just mention these others that are listed here, notable figures. First of all, there's Enoch. His name means teacher or initiated. He's listed really as the first prophet And it's interesting that he knew Adam for the first 308 years of his 365-year time span on this world. Methuselah, he's Enoch's son, the oldest man. I think that Enoch, as the when he had Methuselah, I believe that there almost was an awakening in his life. And he began to instill in Methuselah and other children here the very truths of God. And in fact, Enoch here, being a prophet and naming his son Methuselah, he gives his son's name this particular name, which I don't know why Ethan and Mitzi didn't name their kids Methuselah, or, you know, I'm not sure why it was, you know. I mean, it was an M name. I'm I'm glad you got on that. But anyways, Methuselah. We don't hear that name. But what does the name mean? Literally, the name Methuselah means this, 
when he dies, it will be sent. When he dies, it will be sent. Now, I'm going to point this out when we get to this in this chapter, but do you realize that when Methuselah died, the very year he died, guess what came along? The flood. You know what Enoch was doing as a prophet, if you will, was naming his son this particular name. He had such faith in God, had such confidence in what God was doing, that when his son was going to die, that there was going to be God's judgment on the world. And I'm quite sure that in Enoch's time, the conditions were worsening, and he knew God had to do something. How about the name Lamech? The next name. Lamech, again, knew Adam for 56 years, first 56 years of his life. His name means powerful. But please don't confuse this Lamech with the Lamech of chapter number 4. Remember the Lamech of chapter 4? Boastful, proud, I've killed a man. I dare you to take revenge on me. So much different here than this, uh, this Lamech here in chapter number 4. And then Noah, his name means rest. What an interesting commentary. Look at verse number 29 that's given here. When Noah was named, Lamech says these words, This same, that is, this child, shall comfort us concerning our work and toil of our hands because of the ground which the Lord hath cursed. I believe that Lamech, in naming his son Noah, he saw everything that was going on in society, how corrupt it was, and he knew God was going to do something, so he rested in God's work, and he names his son Noah. Now let me look at the last major point, and we'll wrap up with this. One single example of a life lived for God. This does not mean that these other people that I've talked about haven't lived for God, but I want to single out this one because he, he's the youngest of them all at 365 years old. Enoch. Think about this. Enoch's name, as I mentioned earlier, means initiated or teacher. And literally, if there is one thing that you and I can learn from Enoch today, it is what it means to walk with God, especially walking with God in a sinful world. Can I say to you that if you find somebody in this church who has a life where they're walking with God, follow that person. Emulate their life. Now, ultimately, you ought to follow Jesus. I like the way the Apostle, said, Apostle Paul put it. He said, follow me even as I am a follower of Jesus Christ. In other words, follow me as long as I'm following Jesus. If I get off the beaten path of following Jesus, don't follow me. But you know what Enoch showed? He showed a life of walking with God, and it was a lesson. It was a teaching tool. It was an opportunity to share with others, this is how in this corrupt world, this is how you have a relationship with God. This is how you call on God. This is how you walk with God. And in verses 21 to 22, it seems to indicate that he teaches this aspect of walking with God. And I love what it says here. Look at verse 21. Enoch lived 60 and 5 years and begat Methuselah. And Enoch walked with God after he begat Methuselah 300 years. Now, I, I, I'm not, I can't say for sure it, how, how certain I would be on this, 
Does this mean that Enoch maybe had a so-so life as far as God was concerned? Possibly. I'm not saying that he didn't walk with God the first 65 years of his life, but it may seem to indicate that something about having this child woke him up about the things of this life, and he named his child as such, and for the next 300 years, Enoch was a man who truly walked with God. I'm telling you, children will do that to you. It'll kind of wake you up to life. I thought when I got married and various things and started establishing my home, I thought, well, I'm pretty serious about life. And then a child was born to my wife and I, and I thought, whoa, I got to get serious now. It was a wake-up of what life was really about. I have, I have two little eyeballs that are staring at me, expecting things from me. Boy, having a child sure does cause you to get serious and sober about life. But I want you to notice here what it says about Enoch in this verse here, in verse 24. The Bible says, Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. Now today, after our morning service, we had a missing husband. Brother Kyle couldn't be found by Brandy. She came in church, she said, has anybody seen my husband? I said, well, maybe he's like Enoch. He was not, and God took him. I don't know. She ended up finding he was talking to Scott Anderley, and it was Scott's fault is why, why we, no, I'm just kidding. But, but think about this. This idea of he was not, for God took him, is this idea that leading up every day, oh, there's Enoch. We eat breakfast with Enoch, we take a walk with Enoch, we, we give a little, have a little fellowship with Enoch, we're sitting with him watching the sunset, and all of a sudden there was a day we're like, where's Enoch? He's not around. Well, where'd he go? Well, we don't know. And then it came to, 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 to realize here that it was God who took him. And do you realize that this verse, and I'm not going to delve into this a lot, but this is a very... Uh, powerful truth in regards to the rapture. The idea of a taking away here, a, a, a catching up, if you will, and here it is that Enoch was walking with God, and all of a sudden there's a day where God said, I'm taking you home, bypass death. Now, some have suggested that this might be one of the two witnesses spoken about in the book of Revelation. I must say to you, that is just merely subjective thinking. The Bible does not tell us who the two witnesses are. You can guess all you want, but that is it, it just not worth taking the time to go through all of that. But the question, the greater question is this, not whether Enoch was one of those two witnesses in the book of Revelation, but why did God take him? I believe that Enoch's life was of such a caliber that he walked with God in such a way that God said, Enoch, why don't you just come here with me? Why don't you just, you're down there and you're living in such a way and I want you to be close to me. Why don't you hear with me? In fact, if you look at the book of Hebrews when it refers to Enoch, it doesn't say much really about his walk with God, but it says that he pleased God. 
In fact, later on, just about three or four verses down the road, it talks about that without faith, it is impossible to please God. So we have to put some scriptures together and realize that Enoch's walk with God was this, that he had faith in God, that regardless of what was going on in society, he was going to trust God. Regardless of what everybody else did, he was going to trust God's word and God's way. And he altered his life in such a way that he made sure he didn't follow the world, he didn't go after the world's pattern, he didn't seek other wicked devices, but he walked with God every day, and his life pleased God so much that God said, I want you to come home. Boy, I wish my life could be like that. But here it is, he walked with God, and God took him. It was not. What a powerful. Another mention of, in fact, I want you to just turn here just a moment, and I'm almost done. I'm wrapping up. Would you turn to the book of Jude for just a moment? Second to the last book of the New Testament. I want you to see something interesting. Here's a New Testament commentary about Jude's life. The Bible says in Jude, and there's only one chapter, so chapter 1, verse number 14, notice here, Enoch also the seventh from Adam prophesied of these, saying, Behold, the Lord cometh with ten thousand of his saints. Now, Enoch, a prophet, the Genesis doesn't say that, but the New Testament commentary calls him a prophet. We don't have any wording that is given of any of his messages. But we have to imagine, according to the book of Jude, that while he's walking with God and living a life that is pleasing in God's sight, he's giving a message to other people that the promised deliverer is going to come with his saints and he's going to judge this earth. Now, when we read Jude chapter 1, verse 14, all these thousands of years later, what do we know about Jude 1, 14? We say, well, that's the second coming. Of course it is. Revelation chapter 19 records how Jesus will come and his saints will come with him. That's the second coming. But do you realize all the way back here, Enoch didn't know about the second coming. All he knew about was there's a promised deliverer coming at some point. And I'm letting you know he's coming. Remember when Adam had Cain? The Lord has helped me to have this child thinking this is the one that will be the deliverer. He wasn't. Seth, appointed one. Well, he died. He's not the one. And by faith, what are people of God looking for? They're looking for the coming of Jesus. Because in the midst of this corrupt world, while we see all the wickedness and the wicked devices and all the things that are transpiring around us, we long for heaven and the coming of Jesus. And how powerful it is for people to live by faith and to be like Enoch, to not only have a life that is pleasing to God, but to proclaim to others, hey, you better get your life straight now because Jesus is coming soon. Talk to people in your, your circles, our church here. 
begin to share with your neighbors. Let me tell you, there's a time for you now to accept Jesus Christ because Jesus is coming soon. Enoch was a preacher of righteousness, a preacher here, if you will, a prophet sharing about the coming of Jesus. And what a powerful statement it is. So as I conclude this morning, I ask this, or this evening, I ask this question, how should we live? Are you living like others in this world? Or are you telling others about Jesus' soon coming? Are you consumed with yourself? Or are you like Adam, passing on to succeeding generations the heritage that we ought to have? I must say to you today, there's no doubt in my mind that we live in a corrupt society. But I don't know that we're any more wicked than the days of Noah. And I don't know how to compare all those days, but I'll have to say, if those days were of such a wicked day that God called down a flood, what does that say about us today? I don't know. But I do know we live in a wicked time. But you can live for Jesus. And you can have faith, and you can trust Him through all of this.